those who do not have the power over the story that dominates their lives, the power to retell it, rethink it, deconstruct it, joke about it, and change it as times change, truly are powerless because they cannot think new thoughts. True power lies with those who can control their own story. You are the story that you tell yourselves. For, for heritage to uh, have value, for heritage to matter, you have to have a community there that celebrates it and connects to it. It's easy to get um, stuck in the detail and in the process and, and forget that at the end of the day, these things, although they're from the past, they're kind of living and they're carried through to the present and then onto the future, hopefully, if we do our jobs right. Our heritage has shaped who we are as a people and a place today. In this series, we celebrate the stories of Auckland, the Pacific, and beyond. I'm Mark Gosper, and this is the Heritage Talks podcast. Kia ora and thanks for tuning in. In the talk you're about to hear, Dr. Stephen Clark discusses the experience of soldiers returning to New Zealand after World War I, and in particular, the lack of support and acknowledgement for those suffering acute fallout, both mental and physical. Dr. Clark also traces the rise of the Returned Services Association as not only an important financial, but also emotional support for soldiers as they began the often difficult adjustment back to civilian life. We'd never in fact outgrown the shadow of that earlier war which our fathers had fought. It brooded over our thoughts and emotions. Old wars take on dignity and grandeur. As children, we'd heard men's stories coming home they stood silent in parades of remembrance, knew the names of old battles and heroes as part of our lives. We felt the tragic waste and splendour of this first great war and grew up in the wasteland that it produced. New Zealand writer and author of that classic Man Alone, John Mulgan's recollection of interwar years graphically depicts the dramatic impact of the First World War on New Zealand society. A period shaped by, by pride in the war contribution of New Zealand, but also the sorrow at its impact. The wasteland was partly a result of the collective shock of the war and the partly attempts by New Zealanders, particularly returned soldiers, to find solace in a quiet life. Many returned soldiers by the late 1920s, 30s were certainly living in a form of their own wasteland, a decade after New Zealanders had joyously celebrated the end of the Great War and trumpeted their return. A great silence had come over the land. Society had tired uh, of them and those that had returned. And they increasingly questioned whether it had not been in vain and whether they had even had the conviction by the late 20s to commemorate even on one day of the year. And we're talking about Anzac Day. The last post was also playing for our veterans. The legacy of their war service, latent war injuries, gas-damaged lungs, shell shock, disrupted lives, it was taking a belated and terrible toll and the basis of an ever-increasing physical, psychological, economic, and social decline. Even the club rooms of their once vibrant 
organisation, the Returned Soldiers Association, as they were not, not the RSA was then known, were virtually empty by the, the late 1920s. But let's go back to 1919, explore the immediate post-war experience of soldiers returning home and their longer journey to find normalcy during the 1920s before we look at their collective revival of their identity, culture and organisation during the 1930s. So we're looking at the, as the short, medium, but also the long return of our 80,000 plus New Zealanders from the war. 100 years ago this year, tens of thousands of New Zealanders were waiting in the UK for the long voyage home. If they could, they had to wait for the ships. There was a real shortage of ships, because you, you've got to think that uh, there's soldiers needing to go back all around the world to India, Australia, South Africa. So the New Zealanders waited. And they took the time to do professional and trade courses, playing sport and sightseeing. And this all somewhat acted as a decompression chamber after four years of war and seeing the unspeakable. The great bulk of soldiers, though, in 1919, 52,833 men and nurses eventually were repatriated in the 12 months from the armistice through 1919. So that by Christmas 1919, only 792 remained overseas. Now, a few took a bit longer to, to, to complete... Oh, push that. Um, to complete professional courses. And then there's the tragic story of the living unknown soldier who went missing in the action of the, of the Somme and then went missing in, in a Sydney lunatic asylum for 12 years until a serious publicity campaign and search uh, was started. And there was a vital clue it was a small flag, and I can only think that it was a, a New Zealand flag. And it was that this, this piece of information in the newspapers, both in Australia and New Zealand, and especially the old New Zealand truth at the time, uh, a schoolmate recognised the, t uh, uh, the photo and that his friend had got this small flag. And so there was a, a, a reunion with Mum in Sydney. She went across from Stratford, and he returned uh, George Mackay, Mackay from, from Sydney, but it wasn't a Homeric uh, return as has been depicted uh, somewhat in a, in a recent history of this incredible story that I heard about from a young PhD student in 2007 uh, looking through New South Wales health uh, records, but she, because of uh, using health records, couldn't use his name, so he was given another name, but she did throw up a New Zealand Truth <laughs> uh, page, so of course, <laughs> we had a look. He, George came back, but he spent most of the rest of his life until he died in 1951, in and out of Porirua Mental Hospital, and yet another example of the cost of the war on George and his family. 
But at least mum, who thought he'd been missing or dead for 11, 12 years, had a son returned to New Zealand. The, the Returned Soldiers Association formed in 1916 attracted the majority of these soldiers. Uh, it worked to mitigate the, the, the passage from soldier to citizen. And their rate of growth was indeed impressive. From 10,000 members in 1918, the membership swelled to 25,000 by mid-1919 and peaked the following year with 57,000 members. Or well, that's two-thirds of the total returned uh, service population by that year when you look at censuses. And of course, we had a few, few uh, returned men from South Africa as well, and some of them uh, doubled up in terms of going to the First World War as well. The expansion brought no, not only enhanced strength, but also organisational problems as local clubs and Dominion headquarters in Wellington grappled with keeping on top of such rapid growth. But the greatest problem was how to restrain the high expectation of their members. In 1919, growing dissent arose as sections of the returned soldier population felt that the government was reluctant to meet their demands in the areas of repatriation, such as uh, land settlement, pensions. And generally, they're impatient to cash in on the promise of a land fit for heroes. It needs to be remembered that this was a membership that was the, um, for the RSA was the youngest and most outspoken uh, in its history. The vast majority of members were, were still, in their 19, uh, still in their 20s. The threat of direct action by a recently demobilised civilian army uh, was not a trivial concern. And this was demonstrated when upwards of 2,000 uh, returned soldiers marched down Lampton Quay and marched on Parliament and left a few broken windows uh, of, of the new Parliament building, which had only been opened uh, in 1917, two years earlier. They actually locked, barred the doors. Um, and this was, this was a, a, a around um, an argument to get a, a higher war gratuity from government. So, you know, direct action by the flax roots. And, and the RSA Dominion president of the time cabled the Prime Minister Massey and apologised and said, this is not the tactic or the policy of the RSA. And it showed that there was, there was started a started to be a bit of a rift between the headquarters that were lobbying at the highest levels of government and the flex roots of the RSA that wanted action now. And probably nowhere uh, is this um, rift more obvious and, and, and great than with its largest local RSA, and that was here in Auckland, where by 1921 there were 7,000 members. It was a large organisation and a, a, a very radical one as well, including a desire to enter politics. Now, the RSA restrained from entering 
party politics, knowing that its members were from both sides, and it was about you know, lobbying from the outside. But in 1921, a fellow uh, Auckland RSA member and reform candidate, Clutha McKenzie, in the Auckland East by-election, defeated John A. Lee, Auckland RSA, a fellow Auckland RSA, an executive member standing for Labour. So uh, even though they didn't enter a, a returned soldiers' party, uh, these were returned soldiers' uh, putting themselves up for election. Now, in the general election, however, the next year, Lee got revenge on his former uh, boss, Clutha McKenzie, the editor of the Chronicles of the <coughs> NZEF, which Lee, as a former journalist, had written some, some articles as well as, as fighting in the war. Now, this Lee, Lee on, the, on the left and Clutha McKenzie on the right. Um, this Herculean contest between the one-armed Lee and the blind McKenzie indicates not, on, not only their tenacity of these two war-ravaged warriors, but also that the RSA did include, amongst its ranks, the full spectrum of uh, party politics. Now, all this unrest would have, wasn't how the top military commander in New Zealand, resident commander in New Zealand during the, the First World War, thought it was going to pan out. Major General Sir Alfred Robin uh, believed, I cannot see that the comparatively short period spent with the forces should be as unsettling. It is rather hard to believe that even in the case of men with the longer service, it should, after a whole course of yet alter a whole course of a young man's life, with, with hindsight, that, that seems extraordinary. You're thinking a massive challenge of um, rehabilitating 80,000 men that have gone to the worst war uh, known to man at that time into a population of one million. So this, you know, almost 10% of the population had to rehabilitate. However, by the 1920s, the early 1920s, there were many indicators that the great mass of returned soldiers had actually successfully rehabilitated. By 1922, the repatriation department that had been formed in 1918 had in three years successfully what later would be forgotten, and forgotten in the RSA circles as well, assisted tens of thousands of returned soldiers to find employment, training and apprenticeships, as well as loans to buy houses, establish businesses, and purchase the farms, the land settlement element. But so little was understood about the longer-term effect of war service that the government concluded that actually repatriation uh, was, was finished. They'd done it, and so they closed the department at the end of 1922. The RSA actually was applauding because they thought they'd done a good job as well. Now, pensions, land schemes, and loans continued, of course, but they were administered by the uh, and continue to be administered by the state by other uh, departments. They didn't feel that they they needed a specialised one-stop sh shop 
and that the, that the RSA itself would be able to also deal with the residue of rehabilitation. Now, the parents in, uh, of engagement of advertisements for engagement rings and baby formula in, in the uh, RSA's own magazine, Quick March, which has been digitised here by Auckland, Auckland Libraries uh, all five years, and is a remarkable uh, source. And it was quite a lively uh, uh, magazine journal at the time as well. Uh, 80 pages per monthly uh, issue. Now, the, these ads for, for rings, engagement rings, and baby formula showed that returned soldiers were starting to settle down, uh, get married, have families, get into jobs, start businesses. Now, that was a bittersweet moment for the RSA because they no longer needed the RSA. It mitigated that return home. And so the membership just sunk. Uh, from that 57,000 uh, maximum membership in 1920, by the 1927, it's down to 6,000 members around the country. Uh, Remember that Auckland in 20, 1921 had 6,000 members. So it's, a, it's the same size as, as, as one association at its top. Well, Auckland itself drops down to 600 members and is forced to sell its mighty uh, home on Albert Street. Now, other RSAs around the country just disappear through for the rest of the 1920s and, and a lot of the 30s as well. Now, the RSA was even contemplating at the national level whether it should continue. But they did realise uh, who was going to stand up for those less fortunate returned soldiers that were unable to rehabilitate, that continued to suffer physical and psychological the physical and psychological impact of the war. And there's also the thousands of dependents, elderly parents, widows, and children without fathers, if not orphans. And they said during this time, stick together, a strong active RSA is necessarily a good insurance policy. And this was the, the sentiment uh, throughout this period, stick together. And those re returned soldiers who did st stick, who stuck at it, did not have to wait long. From the mid-1920s, only two years after the closure of that, the repatriation department by the state, the RSA was calling on the government to make special endeavours to find suitable employment for large numbers of unemployed soldiers because it was uh, the, uh, the soldiers that would be most uh, often impacted by the uh, uh, seasonal unemployment, which happened before even the Depression, through the winters. And it's from the, from the um, mid-1920s that the RSA is reporting on increasing numbers of men presenting themselves, often for the first time, uh, with both physical and psychological uh, problems, such as chronic pneumonia, 
which is a long-term result of uh, uh, weakened lungs, which had happened because of the, the gassing that they've been exposed to at the front. Mental breakdowns after years of stress of coming to terms with the war, but also uh, back to civilian life again. And these, these men were seeking uh, medical attention, pensions and employment. And the RSA started to publicise uh, the list of um, and catalogue that this failing health, interconnected problems of changing disability, over-hospitalisation and economic hardship, and they're all linked. And against its previous self-imposed ban, uh, start to report the increase in suicide of returned soldiers as well. The increasing numbers of veterans applying for the economic, uh, the means-tested economic pension, which the RSA had lobbied for in 1923, which gave you a top-up on uh, your other benefits or pensions, war pensions, uh, was another indicator of a growing problem. In fact, returned soldiers, because of, the, because of their over-representation in the ranks of the unskilled and disabled, felt clean, clean, cleanly the effects of unemployment. And so the, the RSA responded by overseeing their own winter relief schemes. And these were funded by the Poppy Day, which began just before Anzac Day 1922. And which was different to in the United Kingdom, Canada, and even Australia, which had held the first Poppy Day uh, in relationship to Armistice Day 1921. And the story why we went it alone was the French made poppies. This, this is one here that I uh, was able to uh, receive from somebody in this audience today. Um, and it's very special, um, were made by the widows and orphans in ravaged, war-torn parts of France. Now, those poppies arrived in New Zealand too late to uh, market it for Armistice Day, so they held it over to Anzac Day, where it's remained ever since. And why we have a very strong attachment in terms of the poppy in Anzac Day. If you go to Australia, you'll get a badge in the main for Anzac Day, and maybe a bit of rosemary. Their poppies and poppy appeal is, continues to be in November. By 1927-28, the RSA were expending £27,000, or equivalent today to £2.6 uh, per year on work relief for nearly 1,000 unemployed uh, returned men throughout the country. So by 1928, it got so bad that they called on the government to investigate. Uh, they called for a commission. And the government responded with the ex-soldiers rehabilitation commission that heard 166 witnesses in each of the main centres during the summer of 1929-30. And these tales of hardship, suffering and neglect delivered still with the soldiers' good humour uh, only accentuated the series, the, the sense of hopelessness and despair of, the, of some of these broken soldiers. 
the veterans' evidence, together with the reports of medical professionals, government officials, and other welfare organisations, comprising some 743 pages, provides the, an unrivaled snapshot of rehabilitation a decade after the end of the war, and one that undeniably reveals a large unforeseen problem that uh, Major General Sir Alfred Robin or government, government ministers hadn't foreseen when they closed the repatriation department, the repat. The Commission's report published in 1936, sorry, 1930, estimated that some 5,000 partially disabled or incapacitated soldiers were suffering and still in need of assistance and rehabilitation. It, it identified that on average, uh, the average group of veterans was between the age of 38 and 45 years, which placed them beyond the age of uh, maximum adaptability, whereupon outlook and family responsibility made finding and, and retraining or retaining employment more difficult compared with younger men. Not that youth was always a blessing, as the Commission also identified the problem of those who enlisted uh, so young that war was all they knew. They'd, they'd never been in any uh, job or training beforehand. And so when they came back, they, uh, they came back to a, a booming economy in the, um, straight after the war. So they went for casual labour jobs that were, were relatively well paid. And so they missed out on getting into that training. And so skip another 10 years in their 30s, late 20s and 30s, uh, they're, they're finding they've got no skills and there's no jobs. At the other end of the, the scale, again, the Commission has presented the example of a veteran who had understated his age and list with a very patriotic spirit, but his body, uh, when he got to the front, wasn't up to that spirit. On his return, he was uh, in his 60s, so, yes, and there's, there's a few cases of... Um, and, and overall, the New Zealand forces generally are older than a lot of the, than the British Army, or British forces at least. Um, a lot of men in their 30s and 40s, but yeah, even up to today's 50s. So uh, his impaired health was a, a, a common characteristic of this group of veterans at all ages, however. And it was the commission and this evidence that, uh, for the first time in New Zealand, uh, showed uh, what was a worldwide phenomenon of premature, premature ageing. The stress of the war had taken an impact, and the stress also of coming back and, uh, had taken an impact on some of these veterans. And they were, they were physically... Uh, had prematurely aged. And that's, as we know, you know uh, tied up with constant stress and what that does to the mind and the body. So the, the RSA's uh, age-old claim was also reprised that these veterans who had been sent to war as the nation's fittest, or else they shouldn't have been going in the first place, were now suffering ill health. Even if it was equal to that of the general population and their cohorts, 
was a prima facie case that the cause was due to the war, their war service and that they should be reimbursed. Now, the, the medicos couldn't quite go that far, but they did strongly express that the government had underestimated the long-term effects of war service and that they were fast uh, reaching a point uh, where there, there was going to be a, a lot more of these cases coming forward. In short, the, the Commission's findings implicitly, implicitly criticised New Zealand for its short-sightedness, or the New Zealand government, in terms of its rehabilitation policy. The Commission explicitly criticised the pension system for maintaining veterans on bread and butter line existence and challenged that the obligation of the state was to re-establish returned soldiers into society. It was the, the beginnings of a retrospective but very powerful myth that the nation's heroes had been shortchanged at war's end by a thankless state and an uncaring society. Because what we did see was that many thousands did get rehabilitated. Uh, for the majority, it was a success, but there was this not insignificant number, but not majority, that were still uh, suffering after the war. So what did they do? They established the uh, Civil Reestablishment League, or they wanted, wanted to, which was basically going to be a de facto uh, repatriation department. And while the government acknowledged uh, the problem, uh, at the time, at the height of the Depression, it could see cost, and it didn't want to uh, set up a new government department. So in the end, it was actually the RSA that set up a Disabled Soldiers Civil Reestablishment um, uh, League. The, the Act... Uh, the Act had been passed in 1930, but it was more about getting committees locally to come together uh, without much wherewithal in terms of dealing with the problem. The, the RSA went further, and with money uh, supplied from the, uh, the war funds and um, lobbying to, to let the tap open a bit more, they could set up their own uh, re-establishment league. So what, what the league did was it, um, it got trained, uh, trained up soldiers in terms of um, leather goods and basketware where they'd work at home and they'd be sold through these disabled soldiers' um, uh, shops. Now what there's still so, all this lobbying, lobbying uh, for the RSA was... Um, it, it started to bring back uh, members, returned soldiers. The, the depression was like a double blow uh, for a number of these soldiers who you know, had impact, whether it was physical or mental, from the war. And then you had this ec economic impact on you know, these, these numbers that were, didn't have jobs. The RSA... Uh, we were able, through the War Funds Trust, um, to provide a, a parallel uh, scheme of employment that wasn't open to, uh, to those that were, were not returned 
service. So uh, basically, 100,000 100, pounds uh, through the 1930s on employment schemes uh, were overseen by, by the RSA. Well, that's equivalent of over $12 million today. So there was now an economic factor to, to return to the RSA, as well as that sense of, in times of need, coming together, looking after the, the man on your right and the man on your left. So that, that deep down values of, of, of comradeship. And the RSA started to, 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 to come back. The RSA uh, was also revitalised in the sense of uh, the disabled uh, the Soldiers Civil Reestablishment League, getting that up and running. It also lobbied government, drafted a bill to provide the first War Veterans uh, Allowance Act, which was targeted at those uh, veterans that couldn't get a, a war pension because of a, a connected injury, but had prematurely aged. So before getting uh, um, the uh, reti retirement, the, the pension, uh, you, could, you could get a basically the same pension, which was called the War Veterans Allowance, um, much earlier in your, in your years. Now, through the 30s, there's also um, that what's well, part of an international um, revulsion against the First World War and against war in general. That tended to have a bit of a backlash against the veterans themselves, and they felt a little bit besieged. And so they're coming back to the, to the RSA for a bit of a, a bastion uh, and shelter. But it's also time. Um, from 10 years, like, like a high school reunion almost, uh, for uh, you know, the large numbers of soldiers that had settled, were, did have families, had normal nine to five jobs. Uh, the reunion or, and the RSA was a bit of a way of escaping and, and remembering the good parts. It was sacrilege to talk about the bad. You didn't need to either because you had a shared experience of the bad. Coming back together to remember what was you know, the most significant part in many of these soldiers' lives. And it, but it, it, deep down, it was about that, that bond between the men, but also between the nurses and the VADs that, uh, that had worked. And um, there was uh, a New Zealand Overseas Woman War Workers Association was filmed, uh, formed, and it had its own reunions as well. Um, except from the records, it looks like bridge replaced beer games at those reunions. But they did share um, a, a similar, in quotes, uh, yeah, a love of uh, a free spirit of comradeship. So, you know, it was something very unique to those that went to the war that they couldn't share with others at home. They were known as the silent division. They didn't sing when they marched, the New Zealanders, but when they got home, uh, there was lots of song and lots of skits. Now, the, the highlight, sort of the... the the climax of this 
period of revival is a tour to Sydney in 1988 to attend Anzac Day. It was actually the 150th of white settlement in Australia, and it was held in New South Wales. Um, and they, the New Zealanders, 1,500, got on about four ships and went across for, for four days of um, revelry. Now, their, 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 their commander says, and former president, national president of the RSA, said they were going... Uh, to celebrate the bond between New Zealand and Australia. This is uh, General, Major General Sir Andrew Russell. The RSA's Review magazine, which uh, replaced Quick March, uh, phrased it to put the NZ into ANZAC. And they visually did this when they got to Sydney at Martin Place. They laid this wreath. And the New Zealanders left, left their hosts with this cultural gift ringing in their ears. Te Re Koto diggers, haere Paikai matu, Aussies, here we are. Listen, Iaho, better get this clear. We'll take the bridge home for a souvenir. <laughs> now, they didn't take the bridge home as a souvenir, but what they did take back was the dawn service, which up to that point hadn't been um, observed in New Zealand. Or there's, there's some isolated cases which are also influenced by Australians. Holding Anzac Day and getting a public holiday for it in 1920 uh, was all about honouring the families, realising they needed a grieving ritual. By the 1930s, part of this revival of their culture, they want something that represents them. Now, the dawn service is held in Sydney uh, at the time of the landings at Gallipoli. Now, New Zealanders didn't land in the dawn. They landed later in, in the day. And actually, the dawn service doesn't, didn't quite work starting at 4.30 in Auckland um, because it, it started and ended in dark. There was no dawn. So originally. But they were so impressed by it, and it spoke to their experience. It did speak also to the pre-dawn attacks and, and the, the rum before the battle, the last post, the inevitable funerals uh, for the dead after a battle. It spoke to their experience, and you know, in many ways it was a, a pilgrimage back into the past. And so you get, uh, unlike the citizen service, the, the, the dawn is about, was, was about a parade up to, up to the war memorial, a simple red lane um, in Auckland in particular, and no religious element to it originally. It was all about their service, their experience. Unlike in Melbourne during this period, they didn't ban civilians from coming to the dawn service. They took the Sydney model, um, but they appreciated that the population wouldn't understand all the symbolism, but they weren't going to ban them either. <laughs> now, it's indeed uh, symbolic that, that the, the dawn stand-to was first held in 1939 as, once again, the war clouds were gathering. And by 1939, the RSA had 31,000 members, uh, or 35, now 35% of the total ex-service population, demonstrating clearly that re veterans were returning to their ranks. And with, with the war, uh, veterans wanted to return to the ranks proper as well. And many, many enlisted. And those that didn't, 
often formed their own equivalent of Dad's Army here in New Zealand. But included in those that wanted to go overseas were a number of disabled veterans, including double amputee and one-time president of Dunedin RSA, A.J. Gordon. Well, he didn't get away. But uh, by the end of the interwar period, therefore, even if it was going to be a little difficult for Mr. Gordon, veterans were marching out of the shadow of their own war. And it was a very strong part of the RSA ethos during the Second World War that it was going to be different when they came home this time. The recollection of the interwar period penned by John Mulgan was actually written during 1944-45 by Major John Mulgan while serving with British Special Operations Executive in Greece for which he was awarded the Military Cross. Back in Cairo and on the eve of the transfer to the New Zealand Division, a homecoming of sorts, and the prospect of return proper to New Zealand, his wife and five-year-old son Richard, who was actually one of my former lecturers at Target University, the 33-year-old Mulgan took an overdose of morphine. And the date? Sometime overnight at the end of Anzac Day, 1945. The Cairo military police noted that the connection of his suicide was with, quote, the possibility of being posted to his native land and having to resume his former life. To paraphrase Morgan himself, he had never, in fact, outgrown the shadow of that earlier war and his own war, its tragic waste, and the thought of returning to a repeat of the wasteland that he'd witnessed. Morgan's literary response to the First World War and his personal response to the Second provides an insight into the shadow of war and a reminder of just how tough coming home was for some soldiers. Thank you. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for tuning in. The Heritage Talks podcast is produced regularly for your education and enjoyment. Talk notes are found on the Talks page at soundcloud.com. Come back whenever you like and feel free to add the podcast to your favourite RSS feed or iTunes. All links are in the talk notes. Images from the talk will be made available on Auckland Library's YouTube channel.